growing up as the grandson of a World War II vet, there is something about that generation that some have coined the greatest generation. And I remember, even as a young child going through school, seeing pictures and even some video of the celebration that would take place when the greatest generation returned back from World War II. Indeed, the streets in the city of New York City was filled with ticker tape parades. Laughter, joy, national pride was just beaming as people celebrated, as there was a parade in honor of our heroes who have returned. Well, what's interesting is that when we get to the end of the Gospel of Mark, we see an even greater celebration that takes place in heaven. Because indeed, it's not just the heroes who've gone to war and who have returned back to a grateful nation. Indeed, it is the greatest hero of all time who returns back to his rightful place seated on his throne. That's what we see at the end of Mark 16. Let me show you. Grab your Bible. And turn with me to Mark chapter 16. So here we are finishing the, 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 at the finishing line of this great gospel. Lord willing, next week we're going to do a summation of the entire gospel of Mark. And then we'll, we'll be done with this gospel. But for these next several moments, it's amazing to think about all that the Lord has taught me as I've been studying this text and learning and growing together with you we began back in chapter 1 with John the Baptist making straight the path for Jesus and his ministry. And what we see is now coming to his earthly conclusion. Jesus has called his disciples. He has performed miracles. He has taught life-altering truths about the kingdom. He has healed the sick, raised the dead, rebuked the religious. He has suffered, bled, died, risen again on the third day. And after Jesus rose from the dead, he presented himself alive to the women near the tomb, to the disciples, to more than 500 people all at the same time. Now, 40 days after the resurrection have taken place, Jesus then goes up the Mount of Olives with his disciples and where he promises he is going to send the Holy Spirit. And this is where we pick up in Mark 16, beginning with verse 19. The scripture says, so the Lord Jesus, after speaking to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the accompanying signs. Luke gives us a little bit more detail in his gospel, so if you wouldn't mind, turn with me over to Luke 24, and we're going to look at verse 50 and following where Dr. Luke gives us a little bit more meticulous detail about this ascension of Jesus, where he goes up into heaven. In Luke 24, beginning with verse 50, Dr. Luke writes, Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up, in to heaven. Luke gives us even more detail in the first chapter of the book of Acts. So can you turn with me one more time to Acts chapter 1, where Luke gives his volume 2 of 
the Gospel of Luke being volume 1, the book of Acts, volume 2, in Acts 1, beginning with verse 9, he gives us a little bit more information about the ascension of Jesus. Luke writes, After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. The ascension is one of the least addressed, least preached truths of the Christian faith, and it has tremendous significance. What I want to do this morning is answer three questions. What actually is the ascension? What was so significant about it? And what does that mean for us today? I want you to see first, number one here in the text, how Jesus ascended back up to heaven. He ascended back up to heaven. In Mark 16, Luke 24, Acts 1, we're getting firsthand eyewitness accounts of the physical, visible, bodily ascension of Jesus going back up into heaven. The suffering servant who came to seek and save that which was lost is the one who not only defeated death, but is the one who is shooting up into the heavens. Now, where did this take place? The traditional site is that it took place on the Mount of Olives. I took a picture of a chapel uh, that is the location of where this took place. Up on top of the Mount of Olives, a chapel that used to have an open roof was built as a commemorating site of the uh, traditionally understood location where Jesus ascended back up into heaven. Around the 12th century, Muslims came in and took over the area, and so they reconstructed the building, and you can see the dome right on top of this chapel. One of the purposes for putting the dome on top of the chapel was so that Acts chapter 1 would not take place. Indeed, the roof would prevent the Messiah from coming back and touching feet on earth. Side note, when you hold the cosmos in your hands, a rooftop is no big deal. But indeed, Jesus will be returning back into the same location where he ascended back up into heaven. That indeed, Jesus is the one who ascended. He physically, bodily goes up into the sky. This is an amazing, significant Christian truth that we hold on to. Now, the place is significant as well. It's rich with history. Because the Mount of Olives, this is a place where King David would go and he would worship the Lord. This was the mountain that David climbed with tears coming down his cheeks when his son Absalom dethroned him as king of Israel. This is a place where Solomon built pagan temples. This is a place where Jesus stood and looked over the city of Jerusalem and wept at their unbelief. This is the mountain where Jesus descended on the donkey going into his triumphal entry into the Jerusalem on that week, holy week that we celebrate. This is where Jesus taught Matthew 24 and 25 about the end times and what's the kingdom going to be like and that is to come. The garden of Gethsemane is at the base of this mountain where Jesus prayed and Judas betrayed him. 
And this is where Jesus ascended back up into heaven, and this is where Jesus' feet will touch back down when he returns to earth. The prophet Zechariah tells us this. In Zechariah 14, says, Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Indeed, Jesus will come back to the Mount of Olives on the last day and all of the redeemed will be with him. You see, the ascension of Jesus is so significant, we even see it prefigured in the Old Testament. When you go back to Genesis chapter 5, we meet Enoch. Very little is said about him, but in Genesis 5.24, it says Enoch walked with God. Then he was not there because God took him. You see, by faith, Enoch was taken away. So he did not experience death. Indeed, he was, he was ascended. He went back up because the Lord took him. Another picture of the ascension is Elijah who was taken up into heaven on a chariot, on chariot of fire in 2 Kings 2. You see, Enoch and Elijah, they prefigured the true prophet of God, the God who would walk among his people and who ascended back up into heaven as the royal king who assumes his throne. Which leads us to number two, that Jesus sat down on his throne. He sat down on his throne, verse 19 of Mark 16. So the Lord Jesus after speaking to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now, Jesus did not sit down because he was tired. He did not sit down because he was exhausted. He sat down because his work was complete. Indeed, everything necessary for salvation was finished. We see this back in Genesis uh, chapter 1, on the seventh day when God rested he didn't rest because he was tired. He didn't rest because he was exhausted. He rested because all of the work was complete. Well, as Jesus is being taken up into heaven, he ascends up in a cloud and he sits down at the right hand of God. Indeed, the King of Kings is in his rightful place, sitting on his throne. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. And he is now seated on his throne, ruling and reigning over all. Indeed, the one who humbled himself and left the glory of heaven to come and be born at Christmas Day. The one who humbled himself to enter into humanity, to take on human flesh. The one who humbled himself to be born to a young girl. The one who humbled himself, who was born into poverty and obscurity. The one who humbled himself and was born into a messy, stinky animal gathering. This is a, a, the Savior who humbled himself even to the point of death. Yes, even death on a cross. He is now high and exalted. He is now seated on his throne. He is ruling and reigning over the cosmos. He is high in his majestic throne, and he is the one who is over all. You see, your Savior came to die for your sins. He is now seated in the heavenlies. The suffering servant is now the conquering king who accomplished his mission to redeem mankind, and he is now seated on his throne. You see, it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus that Jesus defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated hell. He defeated the grave. He defeated Satan. 
And he defeated all of his little minions. Colossians chapter two, Paul said it like this. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he has taken it away, how? By nailing it to the cross. What did he do through that? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So when I was in seminary, I was working at a church as a youth ministry intern, and I had a job as a bank teller. And within the, this one month, really within two weeks, we got robbed twice, okay? So this guy comes in with a big sombrero, right? Fake rabbi's beard, a briefcase, okay? And he's got his, his hand in his pocket, all right? Now, I don't know what's in the pocket. We've been trained. What do you do as a bank teller? If you give them what they want, and you move along, right? You want to save your life. In the state of Kentucky, there's added years to your prison sentence if you show a gun. So there was no gun shown. And so he just kind of has his hand in his pocket. Now, deep down, I was like, I'm your huckleberry. Let's go. I can take you, big boy. Right? I'm thinking it, but I'm like, no. But here's what's going on. It's his hand in his pocket. He's been disarmed. There's nothing there. Satan only has his hand in his pocket. He's been disarmed. The serpent has been defanged. That's what Paul's saying in Colossians chapter 2. That through the death of Jesus, he has been disarmed. He does not have the talons to dig into you anymore. Jesus took it away through the cross. And that phrase, I love this, disgraced them publicly that we see in Colossians 2. It's imagery of a general who is returning from a military victory. And he is a triumphal procession as he's walking through the city, bringing with them all the spoils of his victory. Back in the glory days of Rome, kings and generals would return home from war, riding triumphantly through the capital city carrying with them these trophies of war. Crowds would fill the streets and flowers would be thrown out windows and off rooftops, showering this conquering hero who would ride through the streets. Well, there was an even greater heavenly return 2,000 years ago when Jesus returned back to the glory of heaven. You can imagine the delight of the angels when Jesus comes marching back towards his throne. King David kind of illustrates it for us in Psalm 24 in which he says, lift up your heads, your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Indeed, indeed, Jesus came and he did battle against the greatest enemy there was. And he was the complete conqueror. He was welcomed back into heaven with acclamation and praise as he entered into the great metropolis of the universe. Psalm 68 describes that. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and celebrate before him. God's chariots are tens of thousands, thousands and thousands. The Lord is among them in the sanctuary as he was at Sinai. 
You ascended to the heights, taking away captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, so that the Lord God might dwell there. In Psalm 47, it says, God ascends among shouts of joy. The Lord, with the sound of a ram's horn, sing praise to God, sing praise. Sing praise to our King, sing praise. Sing a song of wisdom, for God is the King of the whole earth. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. Jesus' ascension was a triumph over the world. He had gone through this world untouched by sin and temptation. Indeed, he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He alone is the one with clean hands and a pure heart, who has never lifted up his soul to an idol. And though he was relentlessly per persecuted and hated and despised, he came forth through the furnace of suffering without the smell of fire upon him. He endured death with steadfast love and unstoppable courage and he rose from the grave on the third day victorious over all this is your king y'all this is your master and savior this is your friends this is the wisdom of god this is the one who takes up residence in your life when you believe the gospel paul said it like this in ephesians 4 8 when he ascended on high he took the captives captive he gave gifts to people. Here Paul is depicting Christ returning from his battle on earth. He's going back into the glory of the heavenly city with the trophies of his great victory at Calvary. But what are his trophies? I look across this room and I see them. It's us. He came and he rescued us. We were the captives. We were the ones who were slaves to sin. Me and you, we were the ones who were going our own path, shaking our fist in God's face. And yet Jesus changed our hearts with the gospel. He has taken the captives captive. You're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. You're now in the kingdom of light. You're no longer walking according to the patterns of this world, but you've been transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're not who you used to be. And this is good news. We have been transformed. We're being, and we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Indeed, Jesus has come. And as he enters into his heavenly metropolis, he receives a ticker tape parade. They, and then you see, he distributes the spoils throughout his kingdom. Uh, Paul said like this in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession. Okay, so Christ is the one who's receiving the ticker tape parade and we are the spoils of war. He has rescued us. He said, it goes on to say, and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The imagery of being the aroma of Christ, of being the fragrance of Christ, it comes from the strong, sweet smell of incense that would be in this triumph parade. This fragrance of crushed flowers being trampled under the hooves of these horses. And it produces a powerful aroma that fills the city. Now we are the aroma of Christ. 
Our conquering hero has rescued us. He has ransomed us. He has bought us with a price, his precious blood. And now we are the ones who have been taken captive by Christ and we are being led in a triumphant procession. And so now in Christ, you and I, we are the aroma of Christ. Indeed, where we go and we shine the light of Christ, we are putting off a fragrance that is worshipful to our King. That God takes great delight in his people as we are the aroma. We are displaying the beauty and the power of the gospel. This is what's happening here in this ascension. Jesus ascends back up into heaven and he sits down at the right hand of God the Father. He is going back to the throne that he left so that he might come and rescue you and I and bring us back to a right relationship with him. So Kenneth, is there even more? Yes. What I'd like to do for these next few moments is I would like to unpack eight reasons Jesus ascended into heaven. Now make no mistake, there are many, many more, but for the sake of time, I want to identify eight reasons that Jesus ascended into heaven. The first is this, to prepare a place for you. To prepare a place for you. In John 14, 2, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? You see, one of the reasons that Jesus left, he ascended back up into heaven, was to go and prepare a place for us. And he is preparing for us a home in heaven, a new city, a new Jerusalem. Jesus is gone to prepare a place for you. I heard a pastor say several years ago when I was in college, he said, you know, it took God six days to prepare creation. Jesus has been gone for about 2,000 years. Imagine how great the new Jerusalem is going to be. And it's pretty incredible to use your sanctified imagination to be anticipating and thinking about what is to come for those who follow Christ. That indeed, these light and momentary afflictions that we go through are not worth comparing to the glory that's about to be revealed to us. So we continue to fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We're anticipating this new kingdom, this new Jerusalem, and Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. The second thing we see here is that we see, uh, come on, Bruce, he ascended into heaven to promise your presence with him. To promise your presence with him. John 14, 3. Jesus says, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. Watch this. So that where I am, you may be also. Jesus will not leave us as orphans. He will come to us. He has promised, I will come to you and I'm gonna bring you to come be with me. He has not forgotten you. And y'all, this is the best news. You are wanted by Jesus. Jesus wants you. Jesus wants you. He wants you. 
Okay, let's, let's just do this together. I want you to say this out loud. Jesus wants me. Jesus wants me. Now let that go from here to here. He wants you. Kenneth, I'm messed up. I make these bad decisions. My thoughts are horrible. I can't believe the things that come out of my mouth. These, I've got this past that's so messy and dark. Jesus wants you. He wants you. And look at the beauty and the power and the glory of God on display where he brings us broken people and says, you're part of my family and I'm gonna go and prepare a place for you and I'm gonna come again and bring you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You are wanted by Christ. He desires you. This is not for you to have this egocentric, like, yeah, I'm awesome. This, if your theology makes you prideful, change your theology. It should bring us to humility and say, what? <laughs> he wants me? Hallelujah. Praise his name, because I don't see anything in me that's really attractive. But praise God. Jesus wants you. It's amazing. Rick Swing preached this a few weeks ago. Psalm 1611. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Y'all, this is ours. Like this, this ever-increasing, permanent, full joy is found in his presence. And one day you're going to be there. Christ promises you're going to be with him forever. Number three, another reason that Jesus ascended was to return to the Father. In John chapter 16, verse 5, Jesus says, But now I'm going away to him who sent me. Now, from all of eternity, God the Son and God the Father and God the Spirit have always been together as one. Within the Godhead, there has always been perfect love and unity, harmony and joy. There's never been a time in which the Son and the Spirit are like, hey, let's take down the Father. I'm tired of him being so bossy. Never happens. Within the Godhead, we see perfect love, perfect joy, harmony. They love one another within the one Godhead. Jesus said it like this in, was it John, um, John 10? Make sure I get this right. In John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. What we see Jesus doing in the ascension it's not just Jesus returning home. Jesus is returning to his father. He's going back to the one he loves. There's no greater love than the love that God has for God. That the son loves the father and the son loves to be with his father. This is what Jesus is going and he is looking forward to. He's anticipating throughout his life, throughout his earthly ministry. You see him getting alone in prayer. Why? I've got to be with my father. I want to be with my father. This is what he does. He's returning back to the one he loves. Fourthly, to establish his rule and reign over all things. To establish his rule and reign over all things. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Which means it doesn't matter who's in the White House, they're under authority. It doesn't matter who's in the Kremlin, they're under authority. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who rules and reigns over all. 
And he ascends back up into heaven to take his rightful place as the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who is sovereign over all. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 1, that he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus is the one who is now ruling and reigning over all. Fifthly, to provide access to God's throne for mercy and grace. Jesus ascends back up into heaven so now you can boldly come into the very presence of God. We just sang this together. I will boldly come, right? Straight to the one singing over me the song of salvation. You can boldly come into the presence of God because Jesus ascended and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. We see this in Hebrews chapter four in which the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It means you have access straight to God now through your high priest, King Jesus. You don't have to go through an earthly priest You don't have to do certain things to earn God's favor and then hopefully he'll listen to you. No, you come through the perfect work of Jesus and God will hear you. God loves to hear you pray. Did you know that? Maybe you're like me and sometimes you lay in bed and you pray and think, man, is this getting past the ceiling? Is this prayer that I'm throwing up really having impact? Yes, it's a promise from the scriptures that you can boldly come to find mercy and grace in your time of need. So that when you go through your trial, when you go through your frustration, instead of punching a hole in the wall, get on your knees and go straight to the one who is ruling and reigning over all things. The one who invites you to draw near to his loving, tender heart. Sixthly, Jesus ascended to send the Spirit to his people. To send the Spirit to his people. In John 16, 7, Jesus said, this is, although this is crazy, I love it. Jesus says, it is for your benefit that I go away. It's for your advantage that I'm leaving. You're sitting here thinking, what? It's a good thing that you're leaving Jesus? Okay, why? He tells us. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. Okay, the counselor is the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus ascended back up into heaven so that he might send the Holy Spirit who will come and take up residence in your heart and life. Indeed, when you believe the gospel, the Spirit seals you until the day of redemption. He's permanently in your heart and life. And what does he do? Lots. He encourages you when you're discouraged. He opens your mind to understand the Bible. He convicts you when you sin. He leads you in paths of righteousness. He teaches you how to walk in wisdom. This is the the living God who will one day give life to your mortal bodies. But indeed, just as Jesus ascended back up into heaven, so too will our physical bodies ascend back to be with the Lord on the last day. We have the Spirit who guarantees that. Seventh, to be our advocate with the Father. 
to be our advocate with the Father. In 1 John 2, 1, John writes, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That word for advocate, it carries the idea of a defense attorney. That indeed you have an accuser, Satan, who has a laundry list of sins that he can throw in our face. And before the tribunal of God, in the courtroom of God, where's this long argument that can be a compelling case against me and against you. But we have a defense attorney. We have an advocate. Who is it? Jesus Christ the righteous. He steps up in our place and says they are not guilty based upon what I've done for them. My blood covers all of these accusations. You see, Satan is not only the tempter, he draws you to sin, but he's also the accuser. So that when you step across that line, he's like, did you just see what happened? Jesus says, oh, I saw what happened, and my blood is sufficient to cover all. I'm writing these things to you, 1 John 2, 1, so that you may not sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You have a defense attorney, and Jesus has your back. And guess what you have to pay him? Nothing. He does it for free, pro bono. My gift to you. And I did it. And though it's free, it's costly. It cost him his life. But he gladly did it for you. Eighth and finally, Jesus ascended to make us long for his return. To give us this longing within us for that day in which his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. But did you see what it compelled the disciples to do? Did you see what Jesus' ascension, all of a sudden, what it compelled them to do? Look at Mark 16, verse 20. The disciples went out, preaching everywhere. So we see it right here in the text. Jesus ascended up, Jesus sat down, the disciples went out, and the gospel goes forth. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to do? What do we do with this? What's your impact point? And it's this, bow and worship before the king and then go tell the world about Jesus. We see in Matthew 28 where the disciples, they gather right there around the throne, around around, uh, Jesus before he ascends and it says that they worshiped him. They bowed down, gave him glory, and then they went to the nations. They went and proclaimed, this is who he is. This is what he's done. You can get in on this. Turn from your sin. Trust in him, and salvation is yours. So what about you? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ? Have you believed the gospel? Have you realized that you are a broken sinner, a wretch headed for hell? that you need someone to save you, and you look unto Jesus. You say, I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead for me, and I'm surrendering my life to you. Jesus, I'm following you. I'm putting my faith and trust in you. If you've not believed the gospel today, trust in Christ. Today, cry out to him, Jesus, will you save me? And yes, he will save you. Maybe for some of us in this room, It's time to get low before the Lord, to bow in humble adoration of the King, 
who became a peasant so that peasants can be treated like kings. The king who came and was a suffering servant but is now reigning on high, ruling and reigning over all. Have you bowed before him lately? Have you worshiped him in spirit and truth where you just have the overflow of your heart bask in his glory and celebrate him for what he has done? You have a king who lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, rose again, and is now ascended, seated on his throne, high and exalted. And soon, he's coming back. 